I'm Cameron Harold. I'm about to have a productive conversation with Mike Vardy. Welcome to a productive conversation. It's Mike Vardy once again, and I'm joined by a fellow Canadian, but not hanging out in Canada nearly as much any longer, Cameron Harold. He is returning to the podcast. This time, we're going to talk about the idea of the second command, including his book, The Second in Command. Now, Cameron is the mastermind behind hundreds of companies' exponential growth and has earned his reputation as the business growth guru. He's built a dynamic consultancy with clients that include a monarchy and a big four wireless company. Impressive stuff. He's the author of four books, and Cameron is also a top-rated international speaker, having spoken on all seven continents. He's the founder of the COO Alliance, which, again, relates directly to what we're going to be talking about today. It's the world's leading network for seconds in command. He's also the host of the second in command the chief behind the chief podcast where he interviews coos and other seconds to share their insights with his listeners we touch on that we touch on the whole idea behind a second in command we even tap into my needs for a second in command and how maybe i'm on the path to that at this point if i'm going to learn from somebody i'm glad i'm going to learn from cameron you're going to learn a lot too here's my conversation with cameron harold enjoy Cameron, thanks once again for joining me on the program. Uh, you last time we spoke, you were like across the pond. Now you're like <laughs> <laughs> across the world in a completely yeah. different location, which which I'm sure we'll we'll get to as we make our way through. Thanks for taking the time to to join me today. Of course, thanks for having me. So the book is called "The Second in Command: Unleash the Power of Your COO." And before we mm-hmm. even hit record, we were talking about the book writing process and and what that's like. You've written this is your sixth book, yeah. right? And I've I've had a, a couple that I've been working on over. You know, I've I've had some come out. I've got one that's coming out in the not too distant future. But what you you said to me that this you feel is your best book yet, and by a long shot, yeah. by a long shot. So. Why, why do you think that is? Because your other books are good. I mean, they're great. I mean, I've read your other, but, but there's something when an author says that, that piques my interest. I, I, I think I have an idea why, but I want to hear it from you. Okay. Yeah. So I, I never set out to be an author in the first place. 11 years ago, my clients and speakers bureaus asked me to put up my first book, Double Double. So I, I, I worked really hard and I pushed that book out and it was, it was hard um, and I was happy with it. I was proud of it and it was good. Um, and, it, and it's done extraordinarily well. I still make really good money off it every month. And it's being used all over the world. And then a few of my other books were more um, opportunistic in a way, like there was a need for them, but it wasn't a massive pot. You know, meeting stock was, was done and easy and out the door and free PR, same thing. Uh, the Miracle Morning for Entrepreneurs, I co-authored with Hal Elrod and that was, you know, him asking me to do it. And, and we did a good job and pushed it out. And it's great as well. Vivid Vision was one where there was a lot of demand for when I saw an opportunity to really probably drive a core purpose for myself, which was really to help these entrepreneurial organizations globally because they were missing it. But then the second in command was all new content that I'd never really talked about before. And it was deeply experiential. I was going into the fact that I'd played the second in command a few different times um, and I've been running the CRO Alliance, our deep, you know, IP now of working with 170 CROs from 17 countries. And then I've got this podcast called the Second in Command Podcast, where I've interviewed 240 CROs. So all of a sudden, I was like stumbling around with this deep IP, these industry connections, and, and the fact that I, I actually wanted to talk about it. 
So I just really worked hard at it and pulled it out. And what came out was something I'm really, really happy with. Well, and the reason I thought that is because it's such top of mind present, like it's where you're at now too. Do you know what I mean? Like, like you're so in it, right? Like you said, experiential. Yeah, I think I think that's very true. I, I'm definitely like right in the middle of it, and it, and it, it's something that six years ago when I started the CIO Alliance, I started it because it was a bit of a blue ocean. You know, no one was doing anything in the CIO space. Everybody was targeting entrepreneurs, and I had been the CIO and felt a little bit like the ugly, ugly stepchild, right? Where it was like, why doesn't somebody want to have like I want different discussions than just being with entrepreneurs all day. So yeah, I guess six years of doing that has given me that that experience in that space. And then now it seems like anytime anybody mentions CLO, they're pointing a finger going, talk to Cameron. So I guess the timing of it just worked. But yeah, it wasn't because of that. It was just more there was this need to actually get it out. And I was also frankly tired of having one-on-one conversations with everybody teaching them how to recruit a CEO, how to onboard a CEO, how to build a relationship like fuck. I have all these ideas, man, can I just give them to you here? So I just kind of codified it and did that. And there's nothing out there really on it. Yeah. Well, you mentioned the book. Yeah. That people wanted a Cameron, you know, like they wanted, they needed a Cameron and it's, you're right. Like when you, it's interesting because we, the last time we had a conversation, um, we talked about we we touched on this a bit. We didn't really dive into it as deeply because this this book wasn't out yet. You know, second exam sure. wasn't. But we were talking about it a bit. And it's funny when you spend enough time in a space and you've been a COO, not just been a COO, but you've been teaching people how to and and diving deep into it. You, it's not just tactical. And that's what I found when I was going through the book. There is a philosophical element to the book that, to me, that came across because of the fact that you've spent so much time in the space, you were able to kind of extract and uh, distill some of the, the conceptions that are out there about a COO and then some of them one that might be misconceptions, maybe the evolving role. Mm-hmm. I know you bring up Gino Wickman in the book and the idea of what maybe a COO was, but maybe it's not entirely that. Like how much of that did you feel as you were going through the process of writing the book was this is something that I have to, I have to kind of share what the COO experience is, not just what it was, but what it is now and what it has the potential to be for you. Yeah. There, there was a huge part of that. And it started, you're right in the writing process. Cause I didn't realize that I had a lot of the feelings that started to come out in the book as I started writing it. But as an example, so yeah, I talked about Gino Wickman with Traction and Rocket Fuel, and they talk about the visionary and the integrator. That's typically like a, a 10 to 50 person company. Mm-hmm. And a lot of the ideas of what an integrator is really break down when you get into a company that's mid-sized in the 50 to 500 range, when you actually have a real COO or a VP of operations, and they're dealing with strategy and cross-functional decision-making and teams. And, you know, they're not the tiebreaker. They're, they're having to build consensus and um, so just wanting to kind of demystify that a little bit. And then also I thought I knew the CEO role quite well, you know, when I was one and now I realized I would be incapable of being a CEO for 90% of my CEO Alliance members and, and they would have been incapable of being one for me. So it really started to show me how complicated the role is, which is probably why so many CEOs struggle with how do I find one and what, what am I looking for? And, and it's so different for everybody. You mentioned Shopify and, and Harley, mm-hmm. who comes up. Because Harley, when I interviewed him years ago for a different podcast, he was CFO. I believe he was the CFO at the time. And he then became – he is now the COO. And you, COO. Yeah, yeah, and you mentioned in the story – you mentioned the book, you know, how that happened. There are different – 
you know, when, when people are thinking about the idea of what is a COO, you, you break some of that down. Harley was an example of the MVP, I believe, right? Was he not? Yeah, I think he was the MVP for Tobias, where Tobias was very inward-facing kind of product tech. Harley was like this outward-facing, gregarious, biz dev MVP role. And it was like, the only way I can keep him is to, to handcuff him into the CLO role and let him grow. And sure enough, you know, he did. I, I remember meeting them when they were 50 employees total at the company at Shopify. And yeah. um, I was in their, in their offices in Ottawa and I was spellbound by Harley, even though they were a 50 person company. So you could see it, right? He had that special something. In other companies, the CLO is very inward facing, very quiet, very analytical. Um, Eric Church, who's the current CLO at 1-800-GOT-JUNK, will never speak to the media, won't do press events, won't do speaking events. Like he's very inward process focused and, and building a, you know, they're now a $500 million company, totally different roles. And yet they have the same title. Yeah. It, it, it's interesting. You know, as you talk about one of the things you said in the book, which this totally speaks to is the COO has to be great at whatever the CEO sucks at. <laughs> and again, it's like the yin and yang, which is on the cover of the book. And you know, as I've been growing my business and we're not at, we're not at a high necessarily a, a, a massive scale to a degree, but we are growing is there's things I've recognized as the CEO, for lack of a better term, that I needed somebody to handle that stuff, even though, and we did touch on this in our last conversation, I have been an operations manager before, back when I worked for sure. the Victoria Film Festival. Sure. Interestingly, you said that you you don't feel you could be a COO now. Do you think that you've become a CEO to COOs to a degree? <laughs> no, whole- I, it, it's not that I couldn't be a COO now. It's I couldn't be a COO for many companies because right. I don't fit the DNA of that company. Mm-hmm. If I found a company that was entrepreneurial, 50 employees and wanted to go to 500, you know, needed some of the magic around culture and execution and operations and people and growth and scale and PR, fuck it, I could dive in and, and ignite it and run it and grow it. And then I would break down again at the 500 to 1,000 employee mark when politics creep in and we're, you know, when, when we're dealing with all that. It's just, just knowing your zone, knowing your space that you're in. It's also why I called the book The Second in Command instead of something with CLO in the title. Right. Because in some cases, your second in command is a director of operations. I just interviewed the second in command for a company today. They've raised $140 million in the last 14 months. And he's the chief legal officer, but he runs people, IT, engineering, finance, so he doesn't run finance, he runs operations and legal. He's the most businessy business guy I've ever met. And yet he's also a lawyer who blew me away. When do you know when it's time to get a CEO on board? Like, I mean, again, I've now, yeah. I'm at that point now where they're not at that CEO level, but I brought somebody on who's handling like specializing in operations and community. Like they're really good at those jobs. And I mean, I know, kind of like we were talking about with Harley, like if I want to keep that person, eventually I'm going to have to get them to that level, which means we're going to have to grow at that level, which ironically, they're going to be helping me get to anyway. <laughs> so when do you know it's time as a, as a, as a CEO to go, I, you know what? I need a COO. Good I need question. a second in command. It, it, it tends to, yeah. So the, when you need the second in command tends to be when you don't have enough time in the day to grow the people that are reporting to you to really oversee the business areas that are reporting to you, to actually care about the business areas that are reporting to you more than the 30 minutes a a week that you're giving them in your one-on-one, right? Like if you're running so ragged and you're so busy that you only have 30 minutes a week to give to your direct reports, you need a a second in command so that you can spend time with them. 
brainstorm with them, remove obstacles for them, mentor them, grow them, align them, help recruit, help help kind of be strategic with them. That's really what I noticed is that that's the opportunity for scale, right? A leader's core job is to grow people, not to do work. Right. It's okay. So now I'm, I'm going to lean towards the person who is struggling to make that shift. So yeah. let's say I know this guy named Mark, but it's not me. And uh, <laughs> they're looking at this guy named Mike Vardy. Yeah, this, this guy named Mark Vardy, which often is how I'm, I'm mispronounced, anyways. And so, you know, you've got your setup, you've got your tactical tools in place, like ClickUp or what have you. You're going through it, and you see the stuff that's there. And you know, this goes back to delegation, which I know we've touched on before, but the idea of like, oh, well, there's this, uh, I'll give you a, a very specific example. Um, there's this course that we're dripping out and the course needs to be released manually because the tool we're using doesn't necessarily schedule it yet. So I see it sitting there and I'm like, I should do this, but I know it's not an oper- that's an operational thing, not something I should be spending my time on. So yeah. for somebody who is they know that they're at that point. And believe me, we're, we're shifting in that direction for sure. How does someone prepare for that? How does someone prepare to let go of that stuff uh, and focus on the thing, the vision, the things that only really they can do in the role that they have? So great question. And, and it, it's, it's by focusing on the core things, which is, so your job is to delegate stuff and get it off your plate, Right. The fear is always, oh, if I delegate it, they don't know how to do it, or I can probably do it better, or it's it's easier for me to do it. Yeah, but that doesn't scale. Right. So what you want to do is delegate it to someone and then grow them so they have the capacity, the, the skills, and the confidence to do it so you can delegate more to them. They don't have to be full-time people either. Mm-hmm. You can delegate projects to people who are experts in certain areas until you have enough projects that they're doing that it fills up their week and they need to become full-time with you. So we're in an area now where you can actually delegate to freelancers and to, to kind of fractional experts. The key, though, is, is are you good at delegation? Are you good at project management? Are you good at time management? Are you good at coaching and situational leadership? Do you have those core skills as a leader? And, and if you can work on those as a CEO and get your leadership team to be good in those skills, that helps you scale as well. Let's dive into the fractional part a bit more. I've got a, a friend of mine who is a fractional CMO, and I'm like, and I looked at him like, that's an interesting, I've, I've not, I mean, I've heard the term, but I've not seen it applied. So for somebody who, cause you know, again, if they're just starting to feel the pull of this, yeah. well, can we dive into the fractional component a sure. little bit? Yeah. I'll give you a really good example. So let's say that you're a company and you have a $500,000 marketing budget for the year. Okay. 40 grand a month. You probably have a $140,000 director of marketing overseeing it for you. So now you're down to spending 360,000, you got $140,000 spent person spending it. They may not have the real strategic insights to actually understand marketing. But if you paid a fractional CMO 50 grand a year, now you'd only have 310,000 to spend, but you might get way more leverage. Right? Or this, the fractional CMO might show you three or four freelancers and contractors you can use who can knock the cover off the ball and they could manage three or four freelancers and you wouldn't need the $140,000 babysitter. So it just becomes another potential way. So as an example, I have a fractional CMO working with me who's overseeing our fleet of all the marketing. Now we've got a podcast expert, we've got a YouTube expert, we've got an email marketing expert, the social media team. Um, 
that's it on the on the marketing side and then we have like our podcast and our sales and biz dev people but but matt is really there kind of quarterback and then i've got a, a, a website guy who does all my websites and landing pages mm-hmm. but matt is sitting there in the fractional role overseeing stuff and giving me these insights that i never would have even known what to look for yeah right? yep and that's exactly so, that, that's the role i'm seeing for me right af- now yeah go ahead and i couldn't afford to have him full time yeah. i couldn't afford to pay him 250 grand a year but for 50 grand a year it's irresponsible not to have them yep yeah and it's funny because that's literally when 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 I got the email, like Cameron's got a new book coming out. I'm like, okay, good. Because this is perfectly time for me, especially because we're in that fractional phase right now. It, it, mm. it, it seems to be the smart play for where I'm at. And I know that there's other, especially people who listen to this podcast, they may not have those budgets. They may not have those, that scale yet. Right. I think for most people, we make the mistake of saying like, I need to get a bunch of tasks done. I'll hire a person. Well, do those tasks involve 40 or 50 hours a week for the next 52 weeks? Probably not. So maybe you really don't need a full-time person because then what happens is you kind of needed them part-time, but now you got them full-time. So then you start including them in projects and doing shit that you don't really need to get done. That's really where the lever or the leverage comes from, right? Is, is getting the ROI right on your people, time, and money. Let's get into the hiring process. You talk about, at the, especially in the onset of the book, the idea of when Brian, who also has been on on the show before, when he hired you, you were best friends, friends, right? And then, yeah. and then the second hire, yeah, the second hire, <laughs> different, different experience. Third hire is Eric, right? So, how can somebody can someone go from just get it right right out of the gate, or do they need to have some growing pains along the way, and should they expect it? Uh, great question. So Brian had an unfair advantage with me. Uh, three months before I joined him as his COO, he was my best man at my wedding. So we were, we and we were in a forum, to, we were in a mastermind group, an EO forum group for four and a half years. So he watched me build two other companies over four and a half years. So it's almost like he had a job interview watching me, knew me culturally, knew he, he got along and trusted me. Day one, it was like, here, here's the keys to the business. Let's grow this. So that was easy, right? Until it got really big. Once it was at about 3,000 employees, 100 million in size, it was too big for me. I was kind of pulling my hair. Brian asked me to step aside. We both cried. A year later, he brings in the former president of Starbucks US. I thought it was a spectacular hire. Turns out she was the wrong culture fit, too corporate, didn't really fit in. The market was collapsing with the early financial crisis. So all the shit hit the fan. So she was gone after a year, took him another year, and he brought in Eric Church. Eric and I have known each other since 1987. Now, this is going to blow your mind. In September of 1987 at Carleton University in Ottawa, Eric and I started the very first fraternity in the city of Ottawa together called Acacia. I was president the first year. Eric was president the second year. How weird is that? But he's now the CEO of 1-800-GOT-JUNK. He's been there from that 80 million, because it went from 106 million down to 80 million. He's grown it from 80 million to about $450 million right now. But he would have been a horrible CLO for the first six and a half years because he had no franchising experience. He hadn't done the PR stuff. He didn't have the right culture set. He was more of a corporate guy, a bigger picture guy, a more strategic I was horrible for the next phase. He would have been horrible. So it's it's a timing thing as well as a skill set and culture thing, right? 
it sounds like to a degree, and I'll bring a sports metaphor in here, is that the it's like the the shelf life of a coach to a degree can can take place here, right? Is is that yeah. like so? As a, yeah. I mean, you can't you can see this right now, but nobody else can. I'm a Cincinnati Bengals fan, right? Okay, which yeah. is good now. For years, it was not good, but now it's good. <laughs> and and so you watch like a guy like Marvin Lewis who was in there, who was a great like he was great with players, so on and so forth. But he couldn't get them over the hump. They made the playoffs like six years in a row. They couldn't win a game. They let him go finally after some disappointment because it just it, you you eventually plateau right. And then sure. and then uh, when what I find interesting is that plateaus ultimately generally turn to downgrade. Like it just starts to slide right. So and then they brought in Zach Taylor who for the first couple of years struggled, but then you know. Once he had found his footing, things have taken off. They made it to the Super Bowl last year. So would can I mean the CEO is like the owner. They're there. They're they're, you know, the only way they're not there really is is if there's a board and there's a whole bunch of other things that can happen there. But I'm wondering, do you think that there's some commonality between like especially when it comes to the COO role that there is don't don't necessarily hang your hat on as this is a quote lifetime or et cetera, like long time yeah, appointment. It's- you need them for a re- what is it a reason or a season or a reason mm-hmm. or something or a season? Um, it's kind of like that because there there is a time that that person is great for, and then there's the next phase. Interestingly, though, you mentioned that the CEO is kind of always just there. One of the problems that Brian had with my replacement was Brian moved himself out of the business and kind of abdicated it and handed it over, oh. and really wasn't there. So the cultural fabric got destroyed because he was the strong cultural fabric. He was this cultural DNA. He was the special something and people were craving that. And then when this corporate person came in and wasn't the entrepreneurial blue wigs, you know, loving the franchisees, it, it fucked the fabric up. And, and that's what really caused some problems as well as a timing issue, right? With the, the whole, you know, global financial crisis of the 0809 era. So then then Brian comes back in, kind of like Howard Schultz coming back into Starbucks, then brings the right CIO for that right stage in, and they become these two guys who really give a shit about each other, build a great friendship together, and off it goes again, right? It's like what just happened with Disney with Bob Iger coming back. Yeah, Same thing, right? You've got, because yeah. Chapek was really good at books and cutting them, like, but sucked with people. Just sucked with, with culture, right? Um, yeah. When I worked for Costco... Um, Jim Sinegal was the, was the CEO. He was the guy. He has since retired. They brought somebody else on, and I can tell you that I, you know, I still have connections there. It's like it's not the same company. There's there's some changes. There's some stuff that's happened, and it's interesting because I think. Do you find that a CEO? And I mean, oh, we're we're sidetracking here a little bit. When a new CEO comes in, are they more apt to bring in a new COO, or is it? Do they try? Like, is there a, a trial where they try to bridge it, or like? Did they seem to go? It can seem to go hand in hand in some ways. Yeah, I I don't know. I'm gonna have to to kind of take a pass on this. I sure. give you my thoughts on it. Sure, but I let's don't go have with the some research of the data. Yeah, let's yeah, go. My with some thoughts, thoughts would my thoughts would be that it would probably be lucky if it works out because you're looking for two things: the person who's great at the stuff that you're not. Mm-hmm. So that would imply that the new CEO is great at all the stuff the old CEO is great at. Secondly, you're looking for that real strong cultural DNA. And, and that means that all of a sudden the new one just happens to fit perfectly with the other one. It's like, how does that work? Right. Um, it's like, it's like the general just, manager and a coach, right? Like it's like yeah. in sports. It's like, if there's a new general manager, there's a good chance the coach is not long for this world because the general manager wants to bring in his own, his own people and, or, or what have you, or vice versa in football, it works the other way. 
Yeah, or or like your ex. Your ex doesn't probably go and just date one person and you're off. Like there's there's usually you know what I mean? Like there's yep. there's a fit period. You have to get super lucky with a fit. It's also because this I that's why I did the yin and yang on the front cover of the book. I think it's the most important of the CEO relationships. You know, you can get lots of CFOs, you can get lots of heads of IT, you can get lots of heads of marketing, but the person that bridges the gap across all the functional areas, the person that is there kind of behind the scenes telling the CEO where they're fucking up, like it's a really, really different role. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I want to get into touch on briefly the idea of onboarding, because I think that's where things can fall, fall apart, right? Like unless it's done properly, can you share a couple of insights that you mean, you reveal some in the book, obviously, and I want people to pick up the book. So I don't want to go into too much detail, but the idea of we've got the COO, we want to bring them on board, but we want to bring them on board in the right way. You know, I think of like. Chip and Dan Heath's book, The Power of Moments, when someone goes to work for John Deere and they're like, that first day is like, oh my God, I feel like like this is an amazing thing. Is there that kind of, how do you cultivate that when you're doing the onboarding process for a COO? Can you? Huge, huge question. Great question. I've spent a lot of time with a number of my guests on the Second Command podcast asking this because often they get brought into the company when there's already 400 people there. And they're the new COO coming in and people are like, well, who the hell are you? And, you know, what, what gives you the, the right to make these decisions? And I wanted that job and I'm kind of pissed that you got it. So it's almost like the first 30 days that they show up, it's all about just asking questions, getting to know people, getting to know the culture, making zero decisions, just meeting people, getting to know people, getting to like people and taking pages and pages of notes of things that you think you might want to change and you change nothing. In the next 30 days, so month two, it's kind of about testing your hypotheses. It's like, I think I should fire that person. Let me go and check. Oh, shit, I was wrong. They turn out to be a star. I think I should fire that person. Yeah, turns out I might be right. I think they should put, you know, so you're all testing hypothesis in the second month. And then in month three, you've probably gained enough trust. You've probably got enough traction. You've probably built enough consensus with teams that you can start bringing some of your old people, you know, people in and you can start getting rid of some of the old people. The hard part is when you're coming into a wartime situation where you have to make moves quickly. Right. That's really tough, right? Or, you know, like it's in a growth period or you're just doing an acquisition or the company's going public or the C- the CLO gets hit by a car and is dead. Like that's a culture, situation- that's a cultural shift that can take place. Yeah. And that's tough when the CIO has to come into that. So there's a, I think it's why the CIO has to be so good at all the people side of the business. They have to be the chameleon. They have to be able to build relationships. They have to be very high in introspection um, and their interpersonal relationships because they're, they're the connection of, of all of this. They're the glue. So I got a couple more questions before we wrap up. The first one is <laughs> you are clearly the CEO of your brand, the work you do now, obviously, right? right? Yeah. Which means you're not the COO or are you? Yeah. How hard, how hard is it for you not to be the COO knowing full well that that's kind of where you've been, you know, dwelling and you know a lot about it. Again, that idea of expertise, it can lend itself either it can leverage itself or it can land you in hot water, I would imagine. Well, so look, so, so the business that I'm running is a small business now, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, it has large scope and then I've got members from 17 countries, but we're a 10 person team. Yeah. So it's not hard to manage a 10 person team. For me, when I was 20 years old, I had 12 full-time employees already. Yep. So I, I started running my first business, College Pro Painters in, in 1986, right? So yep. I was an entrepreneur and then I'd coached 120 entrepreneurs by 1994. 
So I had been in this strange space of being an entrepreneur, coaching entrepreneurs, and all of them in the whole 10 to 20 person stage. So this is my sweet spot in terms of it's easy. It's fun. It's like to scale it out to something really, really big to like maybe the size of a, a big, you know, 20,000 person organization. Yeah. I'll need to bring on the proper professional services team. Do you think that wisdom, patience, those soft skills are underrated and undervalued in the role of a COO? Cause I could think that ego can get, can it, 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 I mean, everybody has it might get the better of some people, but, I mean, I, I imagine that wisdom and maturity is, a, is like formidable assets for the CEO to have. I think they're formidable assets right now for any leader to have. And I think we're noticing an awful lot of the very young leaders that have really strong tech skills and a lot of confidence, but they don't actually have the street smarts of having done it yet. Mm. And all of a sudden they get into these situations where they're way over their head and they're, they're, they, they don't know how to work it. Right. And, and they're, they're maxing out a little bit on stress. So I think we're seeing a little bit of that. Now we're going to, that's all going to kind of, we're going to grow through it in the next five to 10 years as these 30 year olds become 40, right. Or as yeah. these 35 year olds become 45. But yeah, I think there is something there. I believe that there's a strong opportunity to mentor everybody, right? That I, I had mentors my entire career. When I was the COO at 1-800-GO-JUNK, I was being groomed by the COO at Starbucks. We were meeting every single month. Yeah, I, I think mentorship is highly undervalued and people don't make time for it when they should. Uh, more, more people that need it. And then the people that, I mean, I'm more than willing. I know that we're, once you get to a certain age, I think it just becomes something that you want to do. You want It's a way to give back, right? Yeah, it feels, well, it also feels good to be needed as we get older, right? Yeah. Like our kids are growing up, like there's, there's something that feels good. And, and I recognize that I would never be in my career without some of the people that, that really mentored me. Absolutely. It's funny. My daughter literally this morning before we hit record, she goes, dad, here's my grad, like, here's my grad photos. Cause she's graduating high school this year. And I look at the photos and she looks amazing. I'm like, oh my God. Yeah. It's, just, it's almost time. This phase of life is she's going to be traveling like you're, you're gallivanting right now. She'll be doing that starting in October. She's taking a gap year and going all over the place so it's like but we are making her watch taken before she does <laughs> um last question um and in the book you have you know the appendix one of the things i found i mean you've got a lot of resources in there but i want to touch on the podcast the second in command podcast and sure. this is gonna you may have to rack your brain a bit for this but can you think of maybe one or two conversations that you had that were like that that kind of I wouldn't say flip the script for you, but really were like, oh, like they, they were kind of eye opening to a degree where it's like, I've never thought about it that way. Or this is something yeah. I think more people need to know because I didn't even, I've not been relating this. I'll give, I'll give one that comes to mind really quickly. Mm -hmm. Um, and I wish I could remember Matt's last name. I think it's Rollins, who is the CEO of Rippling and, um, larger organization, tech companies, Bay Area, VC funded, former entrepreneur who became a CEO for his best friend. He, he created something called the operating manual for Mint. It's his, it's the operating manual to him. Mm -hmm. He wrote this three or four page manual on how he ticks, what pisses him off, what turns him on, what gets him angry, what gets him excited, how to have meetings with him, how to communicate with him, how not to communicate with him, how to ask him a question, when to leave him alone. And he literally wrote this manual and he gives it, gives it to every single employee on day one. I'm like, that's amazing. Like what a way to fast forward the entire organization. I just thought that was such a, 
a really cool thing. That's an exercise in vulnerability, like a big exercise in vulnerability to it to a degree. I mean, obviously you're setting boundaries and expectations, but I mean, you're saying stuff in there that like this person's brand new. You're putting all your cards out on the table, right? Yeah, it's vulnerability and it's in, it's introspection. It's yeah. somebody who actually realizes, hey. I tick this way. I should let people know I tick this way so that we can get in sync faster. Mm -hmm. You're not going to be able to change. Sure. Maybe I can adapt a little bit. So that that was one. And another one that I've really noticed, and I don't know if it's flipped the switch, but it's just become painfully obvious. As a company scales, it's impossible for a COO to really know what's going on with everything. And there's an ability to release from that and release from the need to be on top of everything and realize that your core roles are to align people and to grow people. And, and you see these, I see these CEOs that I interview when my perception would be like, gosh, you must be like going crazy trying to run this, this huge company. And they're like, yeah, no, it's pretty good. Like I've got good balance. I'm doing this. I'm doing like, how do you, well, cause they, they realize the span of what they should focus on and it's people. Cameron, this has been great. I'm glad that we had the chance to have this conversation. The book is called The Second in Command, Unleash the Power of Your COO. Where can people pick up the book and where can they keep up with you and your work? Yeah, that, that little uh, little bookstore called Amazon is where I focused everything now. <laughs> All of my books are available on Amazon, Audible, and iTunes. Check out the investinyourleaders.com for my course content. And then the Second Command podcast is great. Again, thanks for having a productive conversation with me today. You're welcome. Thank you, Mark. Big thanks to Cameron for joining me on the program today. You can check out all the links and every other helpful thing we discussed at productivityist.com slash podcast 459. And by the way, while you're listening to this on the device you're listening, you can subscribe to the podcast. That's a really easy way to support the show. Make sure you don't miss a single episode of what's to come. Just hit the subscribe button. And by the way, the other way you can support the show, which I'd love for you to do, is to check out the sponsors that you heard during today's episode. Just visit productivityist.com slash podcast sponsors to make that happen as well. That's it for today. Thanks again for joining me this time around. Until next time, I'm Mike Vardy, the host of A Productive Conversation, reminding you, stop doing productive and start being productive. See you later.